Gosper, thanks for being on the show today. It's a pleasure to have you. Pleasure to be here. Of course. Um, well, we haven't really had the chance to really speak before this, which is good because we can really get into the nitty gritty of things. But yeah. um, I wanted to start off with a bit of your background. So where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Yeah, sure. Like you threw me a bit with that question. Um, <laughs> so I'm like, you know, um, yeah, I grew up, I was born here, uh, here as in London. I was born in Northwest London um, in the great borough of Barnet, if, if anyone's curious, a place called Burnt Oak which is a town name, um, to Tanzanian parents. So my parents came here, you know, the African thing. They were students, came here with a dream to work and all that sort of stuff. So I grew up here. I went to school here and obviously educated here, university. I'm, I'm one of um, six brothers and sisters. I've got quite a large um, extended family. And yeah, I mean, had all the kind of, you know, the atypical black British experience stretching from the mid 90s um, up until now. Um yeah, so that, that one's really... What actually is that, the typical Black British experience? Because I, I don't really understand what that means, to be honest with you. I've tried to discern what it means. I think you watch certain sitcoms <laughs> yeah, or you've done certain things. Yeah. But what, what does that mean, like a, the typical Black British okay, you know experience? What? I've labeled it simplistically, but it's quite complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so it's almost in two halves, isn't it? And it, it, it ebbs and flows with the change in kind of the demographics. So, you know, is you know, growing up between kind of two worlds, you know, black British isms being heavily influenced by the Caribbean diaspora. You know, when I was young, my friends were from like Caribbean islands. Really? You don't know the size of these islands because their cultural impact far outstretches how actually big they are. Yeah. And you know, that was, you know, had friends grow up, you know, and with that it influences slang and kind of culture. Um, but there's also a second half to it, which is a little more African. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Typically, you know, when I was young, I never knew anyone who was, I mean, you had your Nigerians around. They've always been As a, you do, man. They've always been a presence. They've never <laughs> left. But it definitely what I understand is black Britishisms has changed. And that's almost the second half of my life with there being more Africans or more people of African descent around. I was at a business dinner when we used to go to kind of crowded dinners about a year ago. And it was titled a black British event. And mm. they served jollof rice, and I thought this is game changing. Oh man, <laughs> that would have never have happened. That's a when paradigm I, yeah, shift. Yeah, huh? yeah, but you know, I can shout out to everyone who's Nigerian. You guys came with your interesting names. I have an unusual <laughs> name, and the only kids in my school with unusual names mm. were the Nigerian uh, kids of Nigerian heritage. So yeah, yeah, I was going to say had a little support is, network is unique, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just at Gosbert on social. So okay, the foresight by my parents, if I'm honest. Cool, man. Yeah, yeah. And so when you were growing up here, um, what? were some of the influencers or influences in your early development? I mean, were there people that you aspired to be? I mean, what's the first thing you thought of when you were younger? Like, when I grow up, I want to be this or I want to do that. If I'm honest, you know what? I, I, I had, you know, my parents came here as students and I realized that had a big impact on basically their aspirations for us as opposed to this, these aspirations I have for myself. So <laughs> I always thought I'm going to do something important because I perceived what they were doing as important. Or, you know, they worked in government and all that sort of stuff, civil servants. So I always thought, okay, I'm going to do something similar, right? Um, I'm going to do something similar. And yeah, so I guess I didn't know what that what that was, but I knew I didn't want to be bored, whatever I'd done in, in the future. Definitely not. And I wanted to make some sort of impact. And that word impact is particularly fluffy and it's fluffy, I think, on purpose. Um, but definitely I felt... You know, I, I wanted to make make my own mark. I know that sounds a bit corny. In terms of kind of early influences and I guess people I admired, I think like anyone, you know, you, you look to kind of pop culture, which provides your ready-made heroes in the form of, you know, footballers. And I think one of the kind of key influences was, I, I guess, 
early entrepreneurs or early stage entrepreneurs that I knew of or had heard about. And and that, that was particularly around kind of music, you know, either it was people kind of hosting, you know, parties, uh, raves, all that sort of scene. There was like a, 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 I'd say generally it was young black boys and girls in London, late 90s, mid to late 90s, um, hosting garage raves and all that sort of stuff. I mean, you know, it was entrepreneurial. They were making money. And at that time it was like, you know, wow, they're doing something yeah. or they're prominent. I, I was never quite popular enough to kind of <laughs> roll in those circles, but I definitely had an admiration of people who, um, you know, perhaps start, made the most out of what they had and the resources they had. Yeah, I can imagine growing up in that kind of environment. The only entrepreneurs you'd see were maybe the musicians or the sports players. Mm. Or those are the people that were highlighted, as you mentioned, yeah, ready packaged um, idols or I don't even know, people to look up to, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, but why do you think there weren't entrepreneurs that were outside of that particular uh, enclave of music or sports that you could look up to? I think, uh, firstly, like you say, it's prominence, right? They're highlighted. So they're already on a platform which makes them more visible to you. Um, you know, my family were entrepreneurial, but, you know, like, I can't explain it. They, they were entrepreneurial in their own way, you know. How so? Like, I had one of my older brothers had a range of different businesses. You know, my parents had things on the side, selling cloth, material, that sort of stuff. But it was different. Maybe there was an accessibility or resonance. You know, as you get older, you naturally feel different to your parents. Like, I, I only realized recently that the upbringing that my parents had, was so different to mine. And, you know, much credit to them for even trying to navigate me through my young years because, you know, I went to a normal kind of comprehensive state school here with all that entails, we're all mixed. We're all mixed bag of experiences in one school. That was not my experience with my parents. My parents were so different. They had a totally, totally, um, totally different upbringing. And it's only now being an adult, I can recognize that. I can be like, wow, like you guys did a lot <laughs> to understand like your kids basically speaking another language, this English that they're speaking to their friends, their interests, their culture, like it's totally different. So I think it was about accessibility ultimately that there were people who were accessible who I could resonate with as opposed to, you know, I always had that, you know, we've all, if you, I guess if you're, if you're of African heritage, you've always got that uncle who's, who, who you see once in a while who's doing well. <laughs> who comes around with a nice clean yeah, cut and yeah, a nice yeah. car and yeah, yeah you know he's doing business no one ever tells yeah. you what he's doing but <laughs> he's doing business so yeah. there are always those people around but I think in terms of accessibility it was people that were either parallel to where I was or I had direct contact with what are some of the things that you can think of uh, growing up that sort of instilled values in, uh, in you to get you to where you are today and the reason why I ask that is because we both come from African households, mm. right? So it's all about, you know, work hard or study engineering and be a doctor, or be a lawyer, or, you know, try and be a moral citizen, you know, all the different values that were instilled in you kind of growing up. But I, I want to understand what those values were and where you got those from. Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to know one, one source, but I definitely think there was a value of, I want to say just working hard, but I'd also say of, you know, I don't know how to kind of phrase this, but it's almost like you know, building for others or building things for the benefit of others. I think that comes largely from like my parents' backgrounds, both, you know, at some point working in the civil service, either here or abroad, you know, the idea that there's a service, there's a strong element of service. And I think that has, that directly influenced a lot of my own career choices, definitely. Um, and I think that even to this day, it's something, you know, service is an important part of 
I guess, some of the values that I hold and I look to reflect them in my working life. It doesn't always get you paid the most. I give it, I give it that. <laughs> I love, love to be a bit more cutthroat sometimes. But there is space, you know, there's space for kind of all, all modes of being. is isn't just about being one thing, but definitely I'd say the notion of the values of service and service for the greater good is something that's definitely given to me by family and that upbringing I had anyway. Yeah, no, that's quite interesting. Speaking of service, actually, so fast forward, let's say you graduate from high school. Mm. How did you get into the sort of entrepreneurship accelerator space? Was this something that you started off doing once you started in, in the workforce? Or did you gradually come upon this at some point where you met someone? Or how, how did it happen? So it was a range of different things, um, if I'm honest. Uh, several factors which kind of came together. Um, I would say after I graduated that, just by chance, I think I was I had, I had this job um, and at the time, it was like working for, it was like GE Money Home Lending in their debt recovery department. I kid oh, you that sounds <laughs> sexy, man. <laughs> oh, oh it, was, it was. It was everything you could imagine. But I remember working there, you know, I was dealing with complaints all day. The only time I'd speak to a member of the public was a complaint. And obviously, we're talking about mortgages here. Yeah. <laughs> so, subprime mortgages, not yeah. just any good mortgage. Um, but I do recall learning several skills that, you know, I'm good on my, I can be good on my feet when talking that if anyone throws something at me, I can handle it. Mm. I can, you know, I can uh, negotiate with angry people. Cause you're speaking to, you know, up to a hundred people per day, um, you know, in, in your, from your, from, from your desk. So I think realizing I had that skill set, and I I'd spent after that, I'd spent the next few months uh, living in Ghana. Um, as a as a young man, um, it's my first experience. <laughs> Still a young man, yeah, come well, on. Yeah, <laughs> a younger man. But that was my first experience living on the continent, and I went initially for a work placement. You know, on the continent, on the African continent, solo. You know, previously it was all family, so that's mm. a very different experience. Yeah. Um, but anyway, after that, coming back to the UK, feeling a bit lost, and then I did some volunteering, and the volunteering was for a charity which was focused on business education. Mm. And they put me on the spot to really kind of speak about, you know, I think I was even asked to speak about the importance of business in the world, something so random and so general. Yeah. And they put me on the spot. They were like, great, do it. I spoke and it was kind of, it went well. And they were like, you know, have you ever considered coming come to work with us? We're yeah. going to go around schools and colleges and speak to young people who at the time I wasn't that much older than. Mm. Um, and did that for a few years. I then left that role. I met some great people. Um, but that, that opportunity was initially voluntary and I really realized that really did change my life and it, it, it leads indirectly here. After that, I went to work for a startup, mm. um, which was an early stage social network. I guess a bit of a, you know, almost like a combination between kind of Facebook, LinkedIn and meetup.com, which well, that what we know is meetup.com. Wow, this must have been really early. You're talking like pre-Facebook and all these. Oh, no, like it, was definitely, it was or? definitely Facebook was around, but yeah. it definitely they weren't as integrated in our lives as they were as as they are now. Yeah, you know, definitely not. Um, there was space for rivals. Now it just seems like who would start a rival yeah. organization? Yeah. Um, but that I went to work for that organization, and it was great. I met some fantastic people. I'm still friends with t t today. Learned all about the issues of scaling any any business, you know, and the idea that some businesses are great in theory, but ultimately unscalable. And having that experience then led me to working for an accelerator actually. So getting my first kind of opportunity. Um, initially it was an accelerator which was based out in Ghana. So come full circle. So Ghana was where I went first and I'm back again. Yeah, And that was really focused on early stage businesses, but this time uh, women or female led. 
mm-hmm. um, businesses in Ghana. Had a great experience there. It was interesting working on the ground because you know it's a multi-stakeholder project. So you're not just working with the founders. You've also got to work with donors and funders and all that, all that kind of international development mm. um, sector requirements. And on returning to the UK is where I worked for a, an accelerator called Velocities, based outside of London, but focused on sustainability. And yeah, I mean, a few years there led me to where we are today, which is startup discovery school. So it was a real, it's, it's been a decade, if I'm honest, you know, a, a decade journey. And I think service has been a big part of that, serving both the founders that we work with in the right way, but also providing them the tools to succeed. And, you know, and, you know, ultimately startup discovery school came out of almost a pain point, realizing if we're honest, I mean, the founders I met over the last few years have generally been, I mean, there's generally a game to play. Being African means that I know the game. You know, having parents that are very ambitious, mm. regardless of ability, mm. you know, the ambition is high. And, you, you know, recognizing that they wanted us to do the best, you know, go to the right university, go to the right schools, because that got us into the system, as it were, you know, the rubber stamp. Mm. And I see a lot of parallels with what entrepreneurship is now. You can almost game the system. And that means that certain people lose out. So if you don't have the right stamps, the right schooling, the right university, the right connections, you just never, never get your chance. And that's where Startup Discovery School came in, like, that's where we really hit. We thought, hey, we know great founders who don't fit the mold. Can we support a more diverse um, entrepreneurship space? You know, can we provide that kind of bridge towards long-term success? Because we hear about the early successes. Um, we hear about some great founders, but it's that chasm they need to cross. That's where we um, come in and our program aims to support them on that journey. You know, you touched on something there that's pretty interesting for me, which is the fact that I thought before getting into sort of the tech space, accelerators, VC, all this stuff, that it was very egalitarian in the sense that mm. the best ideas would always win. And then you figure out that you can game the system if you have the right schools mm. or if you have the right backers or if yeah. you have the right founders, that that could be enough momentum to really propel people to a certain position. And I kind of didn't really like that. And I've always been curious as to how we can I don't want to say democratize it, but ensure that the best ideas win, not necessarily the most connected people, but maybe that's a bit of a kumbaya kind of way of thinking, you know, because at the end of the day, no matter what industry you're in, you still have to create a network and there is an element of it's who you know. But I think they're trying to change that because it's sort of reinforced certain, Mm. I don't want to say biases, but, you know, biases or certain molds. And it didn't give room to other people that were non-traditional or didn't Mm. fit that mold who probably had really good insights into a particular industry or way of Mm. thinking and things like that. Do you see that shift happening now where, you know, you as, as an entity, Startup Discovery School, are making that change and others are doing it with you or is it still just kind of you're the canary in the coal mine saying, hey, we need to change this and everyone's like, check these guys out. What are, what are they talking about? You know what I mean? No, yeah. Um, I wouldn't say we're the canary in the coal mine, but I would say definitely that there is a change. There is obviously a lot of people working very hard to change this. And I do think it's about firstly recognizing limitations. What can't we change? What things are totally out of our control? And, you know, if we're going to talk about, I guess, democratizing entrepreneurship, it's a very complex topic and it's multifaceted. So at one end, you could say, okay, we're going to have more investors from, we're going to diversify the investor body. So we're going to have people from different backgrounds because the theory going that if we have a kind of more diverse investor body, mm. um, then we'll have more diverse entrepreneurs because they'll be identifiable. But that and is that itself won't solve the problem as per se, because you're still faced with a fundamental problem that typically the entrepreneurs who are emerging are those that have generally benefited from 
the best education. There are some outliers, of course. We can point to the outliers. Mm. But generally speaking, that's the rule. You know, I, someone said to, online that recently to me that, um, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of chat online about hardship. How hardship is great. How hardship produces the best. You want to see more entrepreneurs who've been through hardship. And I've got a brother who works in the homeless support sector. And he says to me, I wouldn't wish anyone to go through what some of my clients have been through. Mm. You know, mental health issues, unstable family, unstable housing. And I think sometimes that's been fetishized in a sense. We want hardship. Hardship is not, I've turned down a tier one job for a tier 1.5 job. Oh, that is goodness me. me you know? How will you survive? Yeah, yeah, let's be real for a second here. Um, stable education, home, um, access to resources, more consistently produces entrepreneurs. <laughs> those factors are not limited to those factors. That consistently produces high quality entrepreneurs. That's why we fight for those things mm. <laughs> because we know those are the key differentials. Yeah. You know, we can have our outliers and I think it's important that we do have role models. I'm not trying to discount that, but I do think in terms of if we want a more consistent pipeline of entrepreneurs is those things which are ultimately education, access to STEM, access to support, you know, leveling the playing field for access to certain school courses and all those things are conversely outside the control of the entrepreneurship ecosystem yeah. so that's where i say you know we have to recognize our limitations and you know that work is about partnership it isn't just about we're gonna get more you know black and brown investors that is part of it but it's not the whole and i think if we can recognize that then we can at least have an honest conversation about the next steps you can say okay you know this is a generational thing I can have conversations my parents could have never have had. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's generational, right? It's yeah. like I can, and the same way, if I was to have children, they can have conversations which I can never approach. So I, you know, there is that kind of patience which is needed, um, but also direction of travel. I do think there definitely is a direction of travel, especially in light of everything that's happened in 2020. You know, there are times I feel very impatient with the pace of change, and for good reason, because when you think of what you thought 2020 would be back in the year 2005 or whatever it is, forget even the flying cars and all that kind of stuff. You know, yeah. we haven't even solved these issues of creating <laughs> ecosystems for people to invest in the right things. Forget, yeah. you know, the, the amazing inventions they thought we'd have. But I'm always, um, you know, reminded of back in the civil rights movement in America, when within the space of a week of like mm. riots or things happening, they passed legislation and civil mm. rights were passed. So it's almost as if things can move quickly if people really want to do things. I mean, it yeah. took us how many months to figure out, you know, a COVID vaccine. Meanwhile, the typical, you know, life cycle to get a vaccine is decades. Yeah. You know, when people really want to do something, they can actually get it done. But I think that there is a political uh, cost that could mm. come to those that are a bit impatient and push too much for it because you know, you're exposing yourself, you're going against the mold. People want to just do it gently, not not to, you know, go against the establishment and things like that. Do you ever encounter this? Yeah, and as we become more engrossed in the system, as mm. you, you find that the, to go fast, you, you're limited in your ability to go fast. It's natural as you make more contacts, as you become more of a kind of voice, yeah. there is a limitation on how much you can really push. And I think that's a natural consequence of being involved in any sector. You know, you could say it. And that's why you need outsider voices. You need those rebel voices who can say, hold on, why do we do it this way? Um, and I think it's right to feel to feel impatience. And <laughs> I think my dad used to say to me, these, yeah, he used to have this saying, whenever we'd go high-minded, he used to turn around and look at us. And I remember he'd look over the top of his glasses and say, yes, Gosbert. Our people need to eat now. <laughs> <laughs> Forget the future, man. I'm trying to live now. <laughs> yeah, and I used to be quite disdainful of that view. Like, yeah. But again, maybe it's an age thing. As I've gotten older, I'm like, mm. there is a room for ruthless pragmatism. Mm. 
we need to eat now. It's okay talking about 10 years, mm. but right now there's a problem. And I used to serve as a, as a college governor for a number of years. And I remember like the head teacher saying to us, guys, we've got a real problem with access to science courses for some of our minority students. Mm. And she said, remember, look, we've got kids in the system now. We can't shut down the college for five years and get our ducks in order and then come back. Like there are some short-term measures we have to take. And it's not the most, per it's not a perfect solution, but it's good enough for right now. And I definitely think there is space for that in uh, the entrepreneurship ecosystem specifically. I think it's great that we've got more internships, work placements, access. You've got people like Included VC doing amazing things. And I think it's okay to say, you know what? We're playing a part in the solution. We are not the solution. Mm. Because ultimately we're going to end up disappointed if we put the faith in any entity like that. So you guys are going to sort this out. Tell us when to go. I think that's... I'm learning. <laughs> I'm learning because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an idealist at heart. Um, that value of kind of service does mean I tend to lead, lean towards idealism, which sometimes can make me a bit unpragmatic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, to a certain extent, I'm an idealist as mm. well, but I think we need people like that because without those, everyone falls into uh, pragmatism to an yeah, extent that never true. allows us to dream of what could the future look like. And I think that's a, definitely a, an important part of the ecosystem. So don't don't sell yourself short in, in that regard. But I wanted to touch on something you mentioned a bit earlier, which is the rebelliousness. Yeah, I've always noticed that the best entrepreneurs went against the grain or against yeah. the mold, right? Let's do something different or they wanted to fight yeah. the system to a certain extent, right? But how exactly do you foster rebelliousness or people going against the mold, but protecting them from the consequences of going against that mold? What you're trying to do at your accelerator yeah. is not traditionally done. The ideas that people are bringing to your you yeah. know, accelerator are against what the traditional norm is in that particular sector. How do you think we can create a safe space for people to be rebellious, maybe even particularly minorities or people that are not used to being viewed as risk takers. Mm. Um, so to give an example, imagine someone from Stanford drops out. That's a normal thing, right? Mm. Because it's okay for a Stanford person or Stanford uh, student to drop out and, and try something new. He's rebellious, but that's a good kind of rebellious versus the other yeah. guys. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think part of that protecting people from the consequences, I don't, I'm not so sure we can protect them for the consequences, but we can give people the space to experiment. And I, and I wrote, recently in a post that ultimately what we're all trying to do is space. What we all need is space, you know, space to think, to, you know, to breathe, to be creative, to bring ideas to life. We all need space and space is at a premium, especially now. Normally we don't have space, especially now during 2020, a lot of, for a lot of people out there, survival, this is about survival. I mean, for a lot of businesses, this isn't about the year of growth. Well, unless you're certain businesses, you know, logistics, those guys are doing numbers, but yeah. for a lot of businesses out there, it's about just, you just need to see 2023 and probably half of 2021. I think what we can do is give people space. I think if we're going to protect people from the consequences, it's space to really think things through, think things through, space to experiment, um, space to talk to potential customers, talk to the right customers, talk to the wrong customers, talk to customers they can't hope to service ever. I think if we can provide that, I think that is the most valuable commodity. And the space requires a mix of everything. It's time, clarity of thought, you know, Space to be someone else. You know, a lot of some of the founders we meet perhaps have been working for a long time in particular sectors. This is their first, it could be their first foray into entrepreneurship. There needs to be space that we can reimagine ourselves as founders. You know, there's a lot of talk about founders this, founders that. I mean, anyone could be a founder really, you know. Um, the, the, obviously, And there is no kind of template. I think typically there is a template that does exist, whether we it's written down or not. Um, but yeah, I think 
maybe not protect people from the consequences to answer your question, but we can provide them with space, which ultimately is the key commodity that we're finding. Um, you know, some of the founders we work with, if we can just give them that, that just that breathing space, I think that is that is probably the greatest gift. Yeah, I'm, I'm harping on something which I think is the biggest part of space, which mm. is the economic background yeah. and the freedom to pursue things because of the consequences being limited. So for instance, yeah. if you know that you own your home outright, yeah. that gives you mental space to try things because if you fail, you still got a roof over your head. Yeah, yeah. Without that, you know, you're really struggling. And I remember a statistic showing that uh, you know, African Americans or Black people had the lowest uh, percentage of home ownership in the UK, mm. and that persists in, in other different factors as well. Yeah. But that space—how are you guys trying to consciously create this in what mm. you're doing? Uh, is it just the economic part of it, and is that the biggest part of it, or no. other things? So it's two things. It's on, it's on our model. You know, we labeled it a school, startup discovery school, on purpose because the word "school" evokes both good and bad memories, but also <laughs> it signifies a need to learn, but not in a kind of teacher relationship, but we wanted to take that journey that we're, we're all going back to school and all going back on the journey. And that seeps through into everything. We know we have to understand that most people haven't got six months to a year where they can just take off and try stuff. Obviously they say you should start young when you've got least responsibilities, but there's a big middle in the, before you get to kind of perhaps older age, you know, most people have responsibilities, their family responsibilities, you know, we've had, we've had founders who are perhaps the main breadwinner in their homes, um, perhaps they're looking after parents, paying for relatives to go to school abroad. These are the type of conversations which don't normally happen in accelerators. And I think they're an important part of the conversation. We had a founder who said, I need to rene renegotiate terms with my most important investor. And I was like, you got investment from who? Because it's my wife. So, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. We've done the most a, important investment. Yeah, yeah. We've done a deal. You know, we're, we're taking a financial hit here for a specific period of time. She's expecting me um, to alleviate her of that sole responsibility in six months. You know, I need to have. We need to have that conversation. Those are the conversations which don't normally happen. And I think even from our program design at all levels, we are looking. You know, for example most of our engagements with our founders are, are concluded in the evenings um, or early evening at, at, at least. Um, you know, we also, we're also aware of the industry we're in where we're typically what you hear about our aggressive fundraising deadlines and big raises. I think we have to consciously, I won't say push back against that, not at all, but we also have to read it. It's taken us a journey to redefine what we see as success and there's a problem with that because we both, you know, me and my co-founder have both worked in the sector. So we know what kind of success, we know the trigger points. We know we've almost had to divorce ourselves from that to recognize that some founders will take a longer, their journey to success may not look like a 10x or 100x. You know, it could be just running a sustainable business, you know. And there's no shame in that at all. I think sometimes social media has made that shameful. <laughs> you know, someone's not super ambitious. It's like, what are you doing? Like, yeah. Are you? yeah. So, but that's been a journey for us because we have to kind of reshape. We can't be out here talking about we want to diversify entrepreneurship. We want to see more non-traditional founders, but still play by the old rules. Mm. You know, mm. it's kind of flawed. It's like, where's your when's your ex? Where's your exit? So like, what do you mean exit? This person doesn't want an exit. Yeah. <laughs> I want to do this forever. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously we can offer our perspective and say, yeah. okay, you need to have a succession plan. You need to, but it's not about kind of trying to force that on, you know, force that onto, onto anyone. I had this great um, experience where um, I was in the barbershop and uh, I was talking to my barber and I was like, oh, you know, you guys need, you guys need to take, you know, 
eyes at all. You need to get these contactless payments. Do you know what can? And I was given, I was given, a, I was given a full, full blown economics lecture. Oh yeah, to the guys in Finsbury Park. I was like, you know, more money means a better shop, perhaps even appointments for all of us. Yeah. You know, a cleaner shop. And these guys own the shop because as Finsbury Park becomes increasingly gentrified, mm. these guys can't last because they don't have no ownership. Mm. And I was pretty proud of myself. The reaction I got was like. Like shrug their shoulders like what's this guy on about yeah what's he on about like, <laughs> firstly all, all your plans require some sort of paper trail oh, and yeah. was, you know, we don't need those yeah, huh? we don't need none of that so, <laughs> I was like, we, we don't want 10 of these shops yeah. you know I'd presented my plans for like we can get one here 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 mm. oh, you guys in five years you guys could be you know the cover of Forbes you know they were just like no I'm happy with this this job gives me enough to kind of live on and to provide for my family mm. um I'm a respected member of the community. You know, I like the environment. You know, people come here all the time. What's what's the problem here? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. <laughs> so it's taking me just a bit, you have to sometimes check yourself and I was thinking, okay, well, like I said, you know, I can't be, we're not here to force our own success metrics, but we are here to have the honest conversation and we will always lay out to some of the founders we work with for the vision that you have of this business. Okay. In our opinion, this is the requirements that this is the roadmap. This is what the, that roadmap looks like. And if the per and if someone says, you know, look, I just want to ensure that I'm doing something consistently that I love and I might have no ambition to be global or whatever, then that's fine. I think that we can have those conversations up front. Previously, we couldn't have those conversations <laughs> because this, you know, what we're in is like, mm, yeah. it's not big enough for us, etc. I feel like the barbershop is the perfect accelerator incubator space for people to come up with unique solutions yeah. for uh, the black community and mm. things like that. Uh, there's actually a company that raised, was valued at 200 and something million. Yeah, I just saw those guys. Yeah, yeah you yeah, saw that. Yeah. It was amazing. I was like, who would have ever thought about that? You know what I mean? Yeah. The software to manage your barbershop. But you needed someone that had that mindset, which you had, which was how do we scale this? How do we do this yeah. to solve that particular need in that space? And I think that, you know, we need more of those types of things in, in certain communities, even beyond the black community. It could be, um, you know, Middle Eastern or whatever yeah. it is, but there are opportunities to solve problems that could potentially scale that people aren't seeing. Yeah, and often problems you're confronted with every day, but you don't necessarily see them as problems because they're just part of, you know, the efficient, if I'm saying I'm going to the barbershop, I clear up my entire day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when are you going to come back? Who knows? God knows, yeah. <laughs> yeah <exactly. laughs> but I'm going to learn something Yeah, because either someone's going to be quoting the Bible at me and telling yeah. me this. Or, or selling something. a mixtape or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's all part of the experience. Yeah. You know, I'm going for an event, even though, even if, it, even if it's time is time is tight i've almost kind of preempted it because i know okay if you need to go somewhere on a sunday and look neat and tidy you know you don't go get a haircut on, on, on saturday the busiest day yeah. he's gone on thursday yeah exactly <laughs> you know? yeah. he's gone on a thursday so it's interesting the, the problems that we're close to very close to but we don't necessarily um we don't necessarily see as problems we just see it as part of the experience you know I wanted to touch a little bit on the uh, sort of Ghana experience. I mean, not to go back too far, but being a founder or working in the Ghanaian context versus working in the UK context, there's a whole different class of materials, mindset, resources, you name it. What are some of the biggest challenges you've seen to the work you did while you were in Ghana or in the continent, which by the way is really taking off. I mean, Rwanda yeah, and a few places are doing really well, yeah, but what do you see happening there? What gives you hope? Is there a discernible difference between there and, and the UK? Yeah, so in our work at Startup Discovery School, we've been lucky enough to um, have a lot of contact with um, founders based on the continent, particularly in West Africa, or let's say Anglophone Africa. I think from what we've seen so far, I think there are there are challenge, you know, there are challenges and opportunities. I think from our own personal perspective, it does take us 
stepping back just a little bit because I think the tendency can be to see, you know, we're here in a developed, on, developing or developed entrepreneurship ecosystem and dictate and think, okay, well, we know the solutions. Mm -hmm. If any kind of African founders, and I realize Africa, 54 different countries, hundreds of languages. Yeah. Yeah, I'm using Africa as a catch all time. Full disclaimer yeah, out there. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, there, there can be a tendency to say, uh, well, we've got it here. We've, we know exactly what the problems are on the continent. And I think there is a bit of unlearning we've had to, had to do to recognize that there are kind of the, you know, the nuances, the idiosyncrasies that, you know, the African startup scene has, and it's very regional in that sense. But it's definitely opportunities. I mean, countless kind of issues to be solved. We've had a lot of uh, contact with companies in the, in the logistics space, particularly in Nigeria, and just to hear their pitches and the stories and everything like that has been incredible. Um, to hear about the inefficiencies, but also to understand these are part of a structure. You know, it isn't as if people do not have the answers. And I think that's something we, we've had to humble ourselves with that. It's not as if people don't have the answers to these. Mm. You know, there is always things attached around any problem. Um, and I think definitely see a huge amount of opportunity but just in terms of hunger i think tech has been a great leveler um you know how can someone based in abuja today who's got perhaps who's built an early mvp get traction across the continent it's incredible we've had you know a number of alumni who've come through our program but in particular we've got someone in the payment system uh way of money who are doing cross-border payments in the continent and you know their their, their pitch was quite simple you know, you all know how to send money to the African continent. You're like, yep, we, we do on a regular basis. And he said, okay, great. But how do you send money intra-Africa? What's that like? And I was like, I don't know. Like, what is it about? How difficult is it How difficult is it to send money from uh, Kenya to Senegal? Mm. And he's like, and he gave us an example because it's extremely difficult. That's where we come in. That's the solution. But I think for the founder there, who's based most of the time in Accra and Ghana, he's aware of the unique circumstances that exist that perhaps... We have a perspective to offer, of course, um, but he knows the problem best. And I think that's an example that, you know, oh, wow, I didn't realize we, I, I had any sort of payments and, re and remittances as either coming from or going to the continent, never inside the continent. Yeah. You know, as yeah. much as we use the term Africa, I never think about, you know, the only time I think about kind of pan-Africanism is during the African Nations Cup football, where you've got like yeah. Guinea-Bissau playing Comoros Islands. And yeah. you're like, of course, they're two different completely two different states thousands of miles yeah. apart different languages cultures beliefs and all that sort of stuff yeah but you never see them as what like you know i can imagine i know the different italy england of course totally different yeah but in africa there's that lack of kind of understanding of differences and for many reasons yeah i, I wanted to touch a bit on that difference of context yeah. because we're talking about sort of the uk versus Ghanaian yeah. or whatever african african context and in america um, the African-American ecosystem for investing or creating an economic structure is very different from what I see in the UK and in yeah. Africa. And I don't know if it's because they've had such a shared uh, history that has forced them to unify and create these economic bases when they didn't have other mm. uh, you know, platforms available to them. I believe there was like a black Wall Street at some yeah, point yeah, that course, unfortunately yeah. got burned down yeah, and yeah. things like that. But they had things like the United Negro College Fund mm -hmm. and all those economic... Um, incentives or bases that they created for themselves, I haven't really seen it being translated or at least it's just starting to get translated over to the UK or in Africa. Yeah. Why do you think that is in terms of the difference of black entrepreneurship from one context or one continent mm. to the other? I think, uh, yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot actually, this, actually and, and debating it quite a lot with friends and contacts. I think there's a very different journey 
um, when it comes to you know the African American journey and the Black British experience, which in in itself the Black British experience is divided into kind of very several subgroups. Um, you know, you have what you know people say things started the Windrush generation, um, the mass, what's it, the migration of people from the Caribbean to the UK to work in the services here post-war, World War II. But there was definitely a presence of black people prior to that, maybe not in any significant number. You then have the Heathrow generation, which I call, I call mum. And, and What's remember, that? Those are the kind of the African students arrived in the 70s, uh. <laughs> post-IMF, World Bank, uh, you know, economic, you know, reconstruction the in their country. Generation? Yeah, I guess I, I, I was thinking of a name for them. <laughs> like they arrived in the kind of 70s to kind of early 80s. Um, a lot of people from Nigeria, from English-speaking Africa came to the UK as students. And, you know, and I think that kind of journey, and even most recently, you know, you had a large influx of kind of Somali people in the early 90s, you know, Zimbabweans and Southern Africans in the 2000s. Mm. Like, it's a very complex, even though it's all black British, it's a very different, yeah. fragmented kind of uh, population base with mm. cultures, religions, you know, languages, it's all a mix. Um, I don't think we have that kind of common shared maybe experience in the same way that perhaps the African-American story has. And even in the United States, you have African-Americans, but you also have people of African heritage who are born in the United States who do not identify as yeah. African-American, yeah. African-Americans. But I definitely recognize, and I've not, this isn't necessarily, I, someone else said this recently, that there is an amazing level of soft power in African-American culture, which perhaps black British culture doesn't have. You know, mm. African-American culture is exported. You know, what we see you know, it's in movies. Oh, you know, like sports, like basketball. Movies, you know, or... so even in sitcoms, the, the the first prominent black people I saw on TV, my earliest memory was like, you know, Will, Will Smith, Fresh Prince, yeah. Cosby Show, Hanging with Mr. Cooper, my wife. Yeah. Like those were extremely influential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to go to the United States. I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and if you remember that, for example, you know, that was a very kind of middle-class African-American families who'd done well for themselves. Yeah. Um, it was almost aspirational. They weren't the same, that was, wasn't the equivalent black British kind of equivalent at mm. that time. Mm. Um, so I definitely think they've just had a different kind of journey which and shared experiences perhaps which we haven't had in the UK in the same way. I do think black Britishness is more common now and we are seeing the emergence of such initiatives. Um, you know, we had Lendo, Kwanda, you know, who are taking the kind of um, loan systems which a lot of kind of migrants and Caribbean communities used years ago and translating them now to for a new generation. So that is coming slowly, you know, but um, it's just been a very different journey, a uh, very, very different journey, which perhaps doesn't have the cohesive coherence of the African-American narrative. Yeah. So uh, what gives you hope for the future? I mean, what does 10 years from now look like for you as an individual, but even for the ecosystem at large? What, what are you looking forward to? I think you're gonna, I, I'm looking forward to seeing the emergence of kind of more, um, especially from the ecosystem, more micro investors. I think we're underestimating the we're underestimating the impact that, you know, access to capital can have, especially when I say micro, I'm not talking about huge investment levels. Yeah, but, what do you mean by micro? So, you know, typically when we talk about raises, you know, people start at six figures, you know, if you want to, if you want to be taken seriously, you know, as a founder. There's <laughs> <laughs> not a mill, I don't yeah, want to yeah, deal yeah, with yeah. it. Yeah. But I think we're underestimating the, um, the impact that 20,000 has. You know, uh, in the latest report written by the British Business Bank, so not the left-wing think tank, <laughs> um, you know, they said that minority founders 
are penalized through i think it was something there was a good quote they had i can't remember it exactly but it was something like the lack of integration they have within investor networks mm. and the pervasive impact of wealth and it was like sharp that's the that's the british business bank saying yeah, that yeah. <laughs> you know so it's legit <laughs> yeah it's like okay well okay, easy guys i didn't expect you know yeah i was like half expecting you to kind of ignore everything and yeah. then you come back with, oh, these guys. <laughs> it's like, oh okay i agree with you yeah um so i think we're underestimating the impact or the accessibility of capital the lack of accessibility to capital because you know it can kill most good ideas of course you can bootstrap but you know, if you've got to have boots to strap in the first hey, place. Hey, exactly. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Yo, Some people haven't got boots. Exactly. And my dad says, we need, my people need to eat now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I'm looking forward to seeing um, definitely the emergence of a more diverse uh, investor base and also the emergence of more minority and black founders across a range of different disciplines. Hmm. I think if we can increase access to kind of education, a lot more work's being done and kind of you know, they say that decision, you know, if you're going to be a kind of technical founder, it often means that you've studied a STEM subject. But there was a great report written recently saying that most technical founders, that kind of filtering out is your gateway, sorry, is ultimately, let's say a science subject. Mm. But the decision to put you onto a science degree or pathway is made at like 12. Like yeah. this is early. Like yeah. it isn't a kind of, uh, obviously you've got your outliers, of mm. course, but a lot of people are filtered out. And I think a lot of the work that's being done now through some of the organizations you've mentioned, I'm looking forward to seeing the results of that. So more diverse investor base, more diverse kind of entrepreneurship base, and more diverse kind of founder coming across perhaps who's got experience in sectors which predominantly are not, they're not typically seen. And so having worked in an accelerator which focused on environmental sustainability, I reckon out of probably about 50 founders, I can count probably two minorities. And, and less than, probably the same for women, even if you look at it that way. Wow. Um, I think 10 years from now, that looks like a very different kind of, um, a very, very different pool of uh, both entrepreneurs, makers, creators, and investors. And that's something that gives me definitely hope. I think there's some good foundations being put in um, right now. Like, you know, if you look at someone say, oh, what's the impact of a hack, uh, a weekend hackathon? But I'd ask like, what are you comparing that against? Mm. Like, and are you underestimating the accessibility a hackathon provides for a handful of people over mm. 24 or 14 hours? Even just the train of thought, exposing yeah. someone to other things that they haven't seen might spark something that sparks something that ends up becoming something huge. In fact, a lot of R&D that happens around the world, uh, oftentimes it's done without a particular goal in mind because some of the best inventions have come out of serendipitous research and it was like oh this is an application for it in fact if yeah, i'm not mistaken i think the internet was ultimately the result of a military application it was you know to help them and then they're like well we could use this commercially right mm. and then it expanded into this thing that has dominated our lives but um man we could speak for days mm. i know we're getting towards the end of it um real quick before we end so if there was any advice you could give to your younger self let's say the 20 year old that was in the barbershop getting the lineup about to go out to see <laughs> a will a smith time. concert yeah, that was a good those time. existed um what what would you say to that person what are the two or three pieces of advice you'd give to that person i think okay there's two or three bits of advice i'd give um one would be to start because i don't think most things in life you're never ready you know you often start learn on the way you get some mentors people that like you or say hey what you're doing is interesting you don't have to have all the answers i think that's one thing you, don't, you do not have to have all the answers to start something like you said the internet came from people experimenting half the entrepreneurs we work with it's exactly the same thing um also another piece of advice that i'd give i'd almost get i'd encourage myself to start pitching early 
And by pitching, I don't just mean formal pitching. I mean, sharing my ideas. Mm. I think I spent a lot of time kind of, you know, hiding, like, don't tell people what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And not even in a sense that people might steal it, but it may not be good enough. Yeah. You know, I think I'd encourage that a lot more. We've I met some great founders over the last few years and just general people who, who will pitch half an idea yeah. with such conviction. That's yeah. very African to me. <laughs> <laughs> natural sellers. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. I think that you learned, you know, I used to say, I used to say um about my dad, I say the African dad has conviction about things he has no idea about. <laughs> so if you ask them, what do you think about astrophysics? Yeah. Son, let me tell you about astrophysics. <laughs> uh, complete conviction. Yeah. Um, so yeah, pitching from early. And finally, it's, I think that final bit is, it's okay not to have a plan, mm. which is, sounds a bit contradictory because we're constantly talking about plans. Like, so what are your plan for the next six months? Yeah. Um, but it's okay not to have a plan. I think there's a huge pressure to, have everything in line. So I'm always surprised about the emails I get sometimes from interns who say, oh, you know, um, I, don't, I don't know, what, I don't know what my passion is or my purpose or anything like that. And I'm like, hey, I'm still, you know, it's, it's a continuing journey. And <laughs> Startup Discovery School is something we're passionate about and we love doing. But at the same time, I know it won't last forever. Like mm. this same passion won't last. There'll be a time where it's time to make a change. And that may be taking a different role, perhaps being a bit more distant, doing something else completely. So starting a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, being open. Like yeah. we met via social media, that great platform. Yeah, people badmouth social media, but it connected us. And I think, yeah, just not not being being open to kind of the possibilities, but not being scared of not having a plan. You know, I think when you're not tied to having a plan means you're not tied necessarily to having an outcome. Obviously, there is time for that. There's a time to say, we're going we're gonna to get this across the line. Like, yeah. you know, you, you emailed me saying, you know, could you meet me here at this time? Yeah. I can't be, well, you know, if it happens, it happens. <laughs> oh, see, you can't really. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously um, there's, there's definitely a space for that, but definitely I'd, I'd encourage myself not to be hindered by a lack of destination in mind. Often we're working backwards all the time. Enjoy the journey. As yeah. Like enjoy there. the yeah. journey. And there's a, it's a long journey. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't feel that way. Yeah. Though. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sometimes you're like, is this still going on? Wh yeah. When am I going to arrive? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. When do I get there? When does that billion get into my account? <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. Um, but hey, man, thanks so much for being on the show. No How worries. can people reach out to you if they want to get in touch? Hey, I want to thank my parents, first of all, for their foresight here. <laughs> it's really easy to get in touch with me. Okay. If you're on social media, just at Gosbert, at G-O-S-B-E-R-T. Across all platforms. <laughs> so. Fantastic. Just give me a shout. Um, usually, if not taking pictures, but also debating, I love to engage. I think social media, we get the most out of it when we actually engage and I'm a big fan. So yeah, feel free to shoot any questions across. You can hit us up at startupdiscoveryschool.com if you want to see what we're doing. But yeah, other than that, get me on social media. I always respond. Fantastic. Cheers. <laughs>